Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. Welcome to our book forum today for Bootleggers and Baptists, How Economic Forces and Moral Persuasion Interact to Shape Regulatory Politics with our authors Adam Smith and Bruce Yandel. My name is John Samples. I'm vice president and publisher here at the Cato Institute. And I'm very delighted to say that I actually am the uh, overseer and publisher of this book because it appears with Cato Institute Press. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, first of a little bit of administrative uh, news uh, in the sense that how we're going to go about this today. Uh, if you've come often, you probably know this, but we'll have briefly a period here where I will introduce our speakers. Our speakers will present and comment on the book until about one o'clock. Then we'll have a question and answer period followed by lunch around 1.30. I would ask you to uh, turn off your cell phones. In fact, I think I will turn mine off right now. And um, because that doesn't create problems down the line. With uh, no more ado than that, however, let's begin. I thought it would be interesting to start and give a framework for our forum today by telling a brief story. And the story is this. There was once a group of people who came to be known as Americans who decided to set up a government. And they decided to do it through a constitution. And in setting up a government, they wished to do two things, to empower the government to do what governments should do among free people. And they decided to restrain that government, beginning in 1789. In the Article I of the Constitution, Congress was created, empowered, and to some degree restrained. And the restraint was that the powers of Congress were enumerated. That is to say, the only powers that Congress had were the powers that were in the Constitution. There were no inherent powers, as been the tradition often in Europe. Among those powers was a power to tax and spend for the common defense and the general welfare, to regulate commerce among the several states, and finally, to take actions that were necessary and proper to carry out the powers. In each of those cases, what was inherent in empowering the Constitution was also a constraint, that there was limitations on those powers, especially the power to regulate commerce, for example, but even the general welfare to tax and spend in that sense was a constraint as well as an empowerment. Now, if you've come to the Cato Institute or you know something about constitutional law and American history, you know that over time, the aim to empower has overcome the aim to restraint in the Constitution. That is to say, the commerce power itself, for example, is become essentially a plenary power. Now, it's true, as many of you will jump to say, Justice Roberts realized a limitation in a, a recent case on Obamacare, but that shows you how far things have gone. But those uh, increase of congressional power, when people objected that this was a threat to liberty, the people who wished to see it happen, who wanted stronger commerce powers, for example, for the uh, Congress, 
responded in the following way. These were progressives and new dealers and so on. That no one should worry about the increase of power to regulate commerce, for example, because it, wouldn't, it wasn't like there would be no limitations on government power. No, there would be limitations. Those limitations would be provided by politics. So we could, we could, in a sense, rely on politics to constrain Congress, to constrain the government. As one of my students said last night, you know what? The president's never going to make people eat broccoli, right? In response to the famous broccoli argument. Well, that's where our book comes in today. How well is that working out? How well has politics itself been a, a way of restraining as well as empowering the commerce powers, government regulation, government spending, and subsidies. I think the answers are, we have another story here about how regulation comes about, and it is not a story of the general welfare and the common good. But let's get to that. We want to hear from our authors. So I will introduce both of our authors initially. They will, beginning with Professor Yandel, will speak for a while, and then we'll go uh, to the commentator, Professor Dudley. Bruce Yandel is Dean Emeritus of the Clemson College of Business and Behavioral Sciences and was Executive Director of the Federal Trade Commission and Senior Economist on the President's Council on Wage and Price Stability. He's also a distinguished Mercatus Center adjunct professor of economics at George Mason University. He specializes in public choice, regulation, and free market environmentalism. In 1983, Professor Yandel developed the bootleggers and Baptist political model, which we will hear more about shortly, and which many of you, I'm sure, have heard about and know a great deal about. And in, and in this model, opposite moral positions lead to the same vote. Uh, Professor Yandel received his PhD and MBA from Georgia State University and his BA from Mercer University. His co-author, Adam Smith, joined the faculty of Johnson and Wales University in the fall of 2010. Smith is director of the Honors Program and the Center for Free Market Studies at Johnson and Wales. He is the co-author of Bootleggers and Baptists and has published articles in several peer-reviewed publications, including the Journal of Economic Behavior Organizations, the European Journal of Political Economy, and several others. He's a visiting, he has been a or is a visiting scholar with the Regulatory Center at George Washington University, and he holds a PhD in economics from George Mason University. Professor Yandel, welcome back to Cato. All right. Thank you very much, John. Uh, what a delight to be here and to have the opportunity to thank you, John, and uh, others here at Cato for supporting this effort in book writing and book publishing, and also to express appreciation to the Searle Freedom Trust and to Kim Dennis who also supported our effort. Uh, Kim is out of town, or she would be here. We received a, a nice note from her. Thank each of you for coming today. The Adam, my grandson, and I are engaged in a kind of tag presentation, and I'll be tagging out of here fairly soon, and Adam will be holding forth as we talk about bootleggers and Baptists. I'm delighted that Dot is here with me, and. Uh, 
Dot has heard the bootlegger Baptist story probably more than any other living soul on the planet, um, but yet she has put up with me. We celebrated our 60th wedding anniversary a few weeks ago. Um, well, thank you. We went to Dairy Queen. And uh, so uh, when you get ready for your 60th or some special occasion, uh, we certainly recommend Dairy Queen. They treated us royally. We're talking about bootleggers and Baptists, and the expanded title is very important, uh, which John repeated for you. The expanded title really states uh, the hypothesis uh, that we have been dealing with for quite some time. That is how economic forces and moral persuasion interact to reshape regulatory politics. And of course, the interaction is generated by human beings. And so, how do human beings interact carrying different flags? One flag being the moral high ground or representing it, and another flag being just, I want to put money in the bank. And so, another way of putting it is, we're looking at the sociology of the process that generates economic outcomes. The story that we're dealing with <clears throat> began 31 years ago when Regulation Magazine was kind enough to publish a piece that I wrote while I was at the Federal Trade Commission titled Bootleggers and Baptists, The Education of a Regulatory Economist. And as I was reflecting on that, uh, I, there was one note that I wanted to share with you that is sort of, sort of speaks to technological change. At the time I was writing that piece, Anne Brunsdale was the founding editor of Regulation Magazine, a wonderful woman, wonderful scholar, and a very demanding editor. She and I were swapping different drafts back and forth by rapid forms of delivery, U.S. mail. We got to close to the deadline for the magazine, and we were still, I was still responding to Anne's requests for information and a little more honing on the sentences and paragraphs. And so in order to meet the deadline, I brought the last draft with me on a trip I was making to New York City by train. Anne met me at Union Station, and I handed off the final draft to Anne on a Sunday, and then she rushed down to her office and put it into place. Now imagine living in that world, but that was the world in terms of the transmission of manuscripts in 1983. And so 31 years ago, the story begins, Bootleggers and Baptists enters quietly into the language. I must tell you that I'm a Methodist. I could have called it Bootleggers and Methodists, but I would have lost the alliteration, uh, the, the mnemonic part of the Bootlegger and Baptist metaphor. I have friends who tell me that perhaps I should have called it Methodists and Moonshiners. Uh, <laughs> But, but that's a, a pretty large mouthful. I call your attention to the cartoon. Uh, the cartoon is taken from a piece that was produced by Hoover in Hoover Digest uh, in 2001. And if you focus on this cartoon for a few minutes, not only do you capture the essence of the story, but you also identify forces that were taking place in our country some years ago. If you look closely, you will see that the person who stands with the clerical collar is holding as his sacred text, earth in the balance. 
Earth in the Balance was published in 1992 by Al Gore. He was the first, second sitting senator to have a New York Times bestseller. John F. Kennedy, Profiles in Courage, preceded him in achieving that status. Earth in the Balance became something of a sacred text for the new environmentalism which was forming as what I would call the secular religion of the United States, as that movement was gearing up and moving with great force. A part of the effort, a small part, but a major outcome, had to do with the encouragement of the production of ethanol in the United States, and that encouragement began with legislation back in 1980, and then it progressed gradually with more subsidies, with closing off competition from foreign producers of ethanol, mandates for the production of the ethanol product for use in gasoline. As that progressed, the cause for doing it was strictly environmental, and that's the cartoon. It's the earth in the balance. We must do something to protect Mother Earth. And back in the background, you see the bootlegger, who is the ethanol producer, who, in a sense, was laughing all the way to the bank as the legislation came forward. As we think about that story, we identify elements, uh, key elements, important elements in the theory that develops. Our theory does not necessarily, we don't claim that the theory explains why regulation. There may be some explanatory power occasionally for the big why. Why did we regulate? We do claim that the theory helps to shed light on how we regulate, the characteristics of regulation, the characteristics which generally follow lines that say command and control, technology-based regulation is pre preferred to regulation that would call for goals to be met, performance goals, or the use of economic incentives, taxes, fees, Command and control is the mother's milk, in a way, of the regulation that satisfies both the bootleggers and the Baptists. And so why the book after 31 years? Why the book? And when one speaks to a question like this as an author, uh, one usually is advised to pretend that you had it all thought through before you put pen to paper. I would suggest to you that that is never the case. Books are discovered as they are written. At some point, the book begins to speak to the author. And sometimes discoveries are made that may be minor to the world, but are very exciting to the writer. And so you begin to interact in the writing process, and then why you are writing begins to unfold. And so as we look back, we see, we see four elements that speak to the question why. One was to make the effort to more sharply focus and enrich the theory, the bootlegger Baptist theory. I hasten to point out that the theory is a positive theory of human behavior. It is not a normative theory of human behavior. That is, it is a theory that claims to explain why people behave the way they behave, as opposed to instructing people as to how they should behave. Then to organize evidence 
After all, after 31 years, there was a lot of evidence. Indeed, there had been more than 2 million new pages in the Federal Register in those intervening years. And we make no claim of having reviewed and read all those 2 million pages, but a lot had happened in terms of regulation in 31 years. Then to organize evidence, to address some fundamental questions, and then to illustrate the theory and its application with some recent episodes. Now, we show applications that go way back. I think the earliest story we tell, I believe, Adam, is Magna Carta, 1215. We find an application of the bootlegger Baptist theory there in one of what is called the chapters. One of the chapters of Magna Carta specifies the width of cloth to be produced and sold throughout the realm. It's a command and control regulation. The length, the breadth is to be two L's from the tip of the king's fingers to his elbow, which happens to be the size of the looms used by the London weavers. And so you ask a question, wow, doesn't that really help the weavers in London? The other weavers had to break their looms and rebuild them in order to, so hey, we've raised rivals' cost, haven't we? And indeed the commenters on that particular chapter, the historians who have looked at it, tell us that in a in a way, it was a consumer protection effort to try to protect the ignorant people who were out there who had no way of measuring, keep them from being hoodwinked, bootleggers and Baptists. And so we go to 1215, we come forward. Indeed, we could come forward today to President Putin's speeches that he has made opposing fracking. That's not in our book. He just made those speeches about three weeks ago opposing fracking, encouraging people to accept the position of the environmentalists who know that this is going to be harmful to Mother Earth. And of course, it's harmful to the production and sale of gas, which he is so found so necessary. So as we think about these components of the why, and looking at them a little more closely, that first effort involved connecting bootleggers and Baptists to the public choice body of theory, also known as politics without romance, which gets back to my point that we're talking about a positive theory here, trying to explain the way the world works, not necessarily the way we wish it would work. Included in that body of theory were path-breaking, path, there were path-breaking pieces by George Stigler, by Sam Peltzman, by Gary Becker, by Gordon Tullock, and we build into that network of theory. They were the ones who did the heavy lifting in developing theories of regulation. We claim to have added a footnote. And then to describe what we call the bootlegger Baptist transmission process. If you think of a transmission in an automobile that is connecting the engine to the wheels, we're talking about a transmission that connects interest groups to politicians. How do we make the connection, the sociology of the process? The politician has to satisfy special interest demands in order to keep her position intact. But then the politician has to explain why she did what she did. And so Bootlegger Baptist provides us a transmission that says here are two interest groups. One wants it to put in the bank. The other is taking the moral high ground, and now you can use the moral high ground theme in justifying your actions. And so 
we are elaborating on that process. And then we're moving forward to talking about the Baptists, and this is the opportunity for Adam Smith to come and take over. Thank you very much. All right, well, thanks for coming out today. Uh, I want to echo my, my grandfather's sentiments and appreciating that. Um, in organizing the presentation, um, we sort of divided up between, you know, why was the book written, uh, which he's just said, and then what does the book offer? So what I want to highlight in my comments are what exactly is new in the book, meaning, you know, why should you buy it as opposed to just reading that original 1983 article? Uh, so consider me a, a bootlegger in that regard. Um, there's four categories of bootleggers and Baptists that we enumerate in the book. And so rather than thinking of bootleggers and Baptists as just a one-size-fits-all, you've got moral interest, you've got economic interest, and they somehow come together, we wanted to put more thought into focusing that because we see a lot of different coalitions. So first we thought of kind of the covert um, coalition, which is almost not even a coalition at all. It's when the bootlegger is trying to get theirs, but doesn't have ready access to Baptist cover. So Baptist cover may be available, but it's trivial. It's not really um, cloaking the bootlegger activities. So this would almost be sort of a failed bootlegger and Baptist coalition. And I'll talk about this episode in a moment, but we actually dedicate a chapter to that um, with the Troubled Assets Relief Program, which we consider to be, among many things, um, a failed rent-seeking mechanism um, by which banks were trying to get transfers. So what's the start of the successful coalitions? Well, the first one would be a non-cooperative coalition, and we see a lot of these. These are where bootleggers and Baptists are both kind of pounding um, you know, on the doors and trying to get uh, benefits for their respective groups, but they are not aligned with one another. Or let me put that better. Um, they are aligned with one another. They're not directly cooperating with one another. They may even, in terms of their rhetoric, be opposed. So the classic example of this is big tobacco, right? You've got tobacco groups um, that are sort of secretly supporting things like having uh, no advertising in magazines. And then you've got Baptists saying the same things. But the Baptists, of course, think this is actually going to harm bootleggers when, in fact, it helps them. All right, so um, this doesn't, again, this doesn't necessarily mean the groups are opposed to one another. It's just that they're not in active collaboration, but their interests are the same. The next one is cooperative. So this is when there's some cross-pollination between the two groups where they say, okay, we have common interests. How can we help one another? Uh, the, um, the episode that starts the book off actually is a great example of this where, um, where big box stores are teaming up with uh, local, um, more humanitarian interests to keep out Amazon, um, or at least to tax Amazon in the way that big box stores are taxed. Now, you would think that um, public interest groups would not really align with Walmart, but one of the things that comes up again and again and again is, of course, politics makes for strange bedfellows, right? And, uh, and that's, in a sense, that's the bootlegger and Baptist story in a nutshell. Finally, um, and this is a, a category I'll talk a little bit more, and hopefully we can um, address this during comments as well. Something we're seeing more and more these days is a coordinated coalition of groups. So 
Bootleggers and Baptists can help one another, but at the end of the day, these are just organizations. They still have to go through a politician. If a politician or some political entity, some political entrepreneur, is able to actually bring bootleggers and Baptists together and promote their efforts, then this is, in a, this is, in a sense, the most powerful type of bootlegger Baptist coalition that can manifest itself. And um, as I'll argue, um, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, and uh, what's going on with human health services and regulating insurance markets and health markets uh, is, a, is a very powerful example of that. Uh, oh, and I did mention, of course, we had, we had to have an acutesy name for the coordinator, and of course, that's the televangelist. Makes more sense where we're from, I guess. All right, um, let me speak to one thing. Um, uh, he, said, um, he said something that's absolutely true in writing the book. There's things that appeal to the authors that doesn't seem to appeal to any, anybody else, at least at the start. We came across what we thought was just a great idea, which is, uh, why Baptists? Why, why are Baptists even in the mix? Um, we thought that was a really important question that needed to be addressed in this book. And... Um, we, uh, we feel like we, we, we move the ball forward a lot in that regard, um, and I'll explain why in a moment. But we did get um, a lot of pushback on this initially, even from, uh, even from Cato, I must say, um, as to why, why, are, why is this even important? It's kind of like saying, well, duh, they have to uh, appeal to public interest. That's politics. You know, move on. But why? That's not really a scientific answer, right? There's no, there's no theory um, underlying that. It's just a proposition that we kind of all know, but if we can't speak to or articulate more than that, um, there's work to be done in uncovering that. So we tried to do that in the book, and this is chapter three of the book. So um, we went back, um, appropriately enough, to uh, another Adam Smith you may be more familiar with, um, who talked about uh, not just economics and the wealth of nations, but about um, moral sentiments in his Theory of Moral Sentiments book. And one of the things Adam Smith talked about in that book is how much um, we have sort of deeply embedded, um, he didn't use the phrase genetic coding, but it is, a genetic coding of other regarding, right? Our relationships to one another um, provide powerful incentives in how we cooperate, how we respond, how we appreciate and approve of certain things and disapprove of other things, how we're willing to take cost on ourselves to punish people um, because we just don't like it. Uh, of course, after Adam Smith, we have evolutionary theory and experimental evidence that shows the same thing. One of the great insights from experimental economics is um, how bad economists are at predicting actual human behavior uh, in a lot of instances. Uh, people behave not, uh, they do not behave uh, in a strict rational choice manner all the time. One of the things we do is we tend to cooperate a bit more than, a, um, than the rational choice framework predicts. Uh, and we're also, as I said, we're willing to bear a cost to punish people in a way the rational choice framework doesn't predict. All right, so what is all this evidence leaning to? Well, it's leaning to the fact that, again, we have a deeply embedded public spiritedness that the Baptist is kind of poking at. There's a Baptist element in all of us, in other words, that for better or worse, we can't get rid of, and shows up in politics in the political arena like anywhere else. Okay, um, but how? Well, here's where the problems start. So we have this other regarding instinct. It works very well in our private lives. It's how we get along with one another. It's why at least most of us are not jerks all the time, right? Um, 
But um, in the public arena, it gets a little misinformed. It gets a little distorted as it goes through um, different institutions and so forth. So one of the ways of bringing this out is using one of my former professor's ideas, Brian Kaplan's, of rational rationality. So people you know, are fairly rational in their private lives, but as he would argue, fairly um, dumb in their public lives. Um, we're easily led um, down rabbit holes and in support of things that are actually not against our interests. Now, the earlier theory of rational ignorance says, look, who has time for politics, right? I mean, obviously, you all have time for politics, and that's, that's great. Um, but we have to admit, this is, this is probably a room of fairly unusual people um, relative to, to the average person even walking around the United States. So most people are going to be fairly ignorant and are going to be sort of led, um, I won't make the joke as if by an invisible hand, but as by some hand, um, towards the Baptist. But what the Baptist wants, again, is not necessarily really in the public interest because, of course, the bootlegger is there uh, to guide things in the other direction. All right? So Baptists provide a cloak to bootlegger activity uh, and one that, in a lot of cases, if not most cases, makes the public worse off. Okay. And then finally, it also shows what happens when you don't have that Baptist. If you don't have the cloak, if you don't have any kind of tapping on our heartstrings or pulling on our heartstrings there, um, the bootlegger is going to be short an argument in the public arena. Okay, so let's actually, um, let's look at that with some of the new episodes we look at. So um, one of the things we, we examine actually in that chapter is Occupy Wall Street. Occupy Wall Street in a way could be called uh, a Baptist without a bootlegger. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of different things that Bootleggers and Baptists has been targeted at environmental, uh, environmentalism, tobacco, alcohol, etc. But we wanted to take on some of the new things. So Occupy Wall Street is so interesting in that there were a coalition of forces that wanted to do something for the public, and I believe that's kind of why uh, the group became so powerful so quickly, um, at least in the public spectacle and the media and so forth. Um, but it didn't really go anywhere. And one of the reasons is there really wasn't a coordinator. Okay, there were, don't get me wrong, there were people behind Occupy Wall Street. Obviously, there were a lot of people writing publicly and trying to coordinate it. Uh, but we have to agree, I think, that um, it did not become as powerful as that body wanted it to. And I would argue again, because there was probably not sort of the bootlegger or some sort of interest coordinating that public affection uh, into a particular channel. Um, another new episode is marijuana legalization. This is, um, I, I obviously teach at uh, a college, so this is, this is one that appeals to my students. Um, so one of the things that's so interesting about marijuana legalization is who is the bootlegger? Um, medicinal marijuana is the bootlegger. And if you look these things up, you will find that medicinal marijuana um, producers heavily, heavily, heavily lobby against uh, marijuana legalization. Right, so it almost seemed like too good to be true when we found that example, but it's true. Um, and so you ironically have things like school teachers and, um, and uh, minority groups representing pro-legalization uh, and then medicinal marijuana actually uh, being anti. So again, very strange developments over that particular issue. Um, what we say in the book, because this is obviously ongoing, is that um, the bootlegger Baptist coalition has only been semi-effective because the Baptists are kind of cut down the middle on that issue. Um, and so you've seen success 
uh, and legalizing it in some fronts, not so much in others. The Troubled Assets Relief Program, this is something that we've actually uh, done some work in uh, public choice for, um, and we expand on that in the book. So TARP is, is many things, and I, I imagine it's been, it's been spoken of in this forum and in other groups that you've seen uh, time and time again. So um, I'm not going to bore you with like, you know, an over, overview of the, of the bailout, um, but just point to what our kind of niche is in describing it, and that is TARP is bootleggers without Baptists, okay, bootleggers without Baptists. So regardless of what you consider TARP was originally for, it eventually evolved, especially with sort of the second wave of bailouts, into a rent-seeking mechanism for smaller banks. You had a lot of banks um, that did not necessarily need the credit uh, getting access to it anyway. Some could argue because they were pushed by... Um, um, by the Fed, others could argue that, again, it was, it was rent-seeking versus rent-extraction. But regardless, the mechanism changed from what it was originally intended to be. But it didn't last. Right? It didn't last. TARP is no longer with us. Um, you know, AI, even AIG's paid back the money, right? Everyone's kind of abandoned that mechanism. But why? I mean, we can say, well, because it ended, because it was supposed to. But, you know, you can, you can say that about a lot of things. A lot of organizations that were supposed to wind down and don't. So why did this one uh, wind down so quickly? Can we argue it did not have Baptist appeal? The most we could find for people who were appealing for TARP to continue and so forth were unions. And in this day and age, unions just do not exercise um, the kind of moral sentiment um, that they did in the past. So again, a very interesting um, sort of counterexample of what happens when you don't have a bootlegger and Baptist coalition. Okay, finally, we talk about the Affordable Care Act uh, or Obamacare. Um, and as I said, this is something of a new order of uh, bootleggers and Baptists where you have coordination from a central organization, in this case, the Obama administration uh, and human health, uh, specifically human health services. Um, we are going to see, I think, in the next 10 years, um, a radical change in how healthcare is provided in a way that's going to be hidden to most people. Um, and those of you who are familiar with this, with this area, we now have... Uh, more networks in terms of providers, uh, sort of more network interest, and what is defining these networks or who should be in this network and so forth is human and health services, or at least a lot more guidance than that group has performed to, um, to, these, uh, to these networks in the past. And so we're implementing, we're seeing again a new stage of implementing a coordinated interest across bootleggers being, of course, insurance groups, big pharma, um, hospitals, and then Baptist, all these people who are wanting health care reform and so forth. So this has become um, uh, somewhat, of a car somewhat more of a cartelized industry because of this development. All right, let me uh, just conclude with a, a, a few thoughts. If you haven't caught it yet, uh, I am uh, the grandson of Bruce Yandel. Um, my mother's name was originally Catherine Yandel, and uh, she married a Smith, so it, you know, where are you going to go with that, right? Obviously, uh, it had to be Adam. Um, uh, they did not know that I was going to be led to, to economics, but, um, you know, the genes, the genes are powerful in my family, so what, what can I say? Um, this was a really uh, fun and unique collaboration for me. Um, uh, my, my grandmother probably has heard a little bit more about bootleggers and Baptists than me, I imagine. 
but I have heard quite a bit, and certainly, um, certainly before I could uh, really understand what it was. So I've been hearing about bootleggers and Baptists a long time. Well, when I finished graduate school, um, we were at a um, we were at a function together, and I said, "Look, we got to write the book." I said, "What book? We got to write the book, the book on bootleggers and Baptists." Uh, and this was in 2010. So uh, it's pretty it's pretty darn special, I got to say, to be here and have the book the book out. And so uh, I really appreciate that, um, that we were able to do that together. The second thing I want to talk about is that one of the things we hope the book will do is provide new research paths. So uh, those in the audience or listening online um, who are professors, uh, especially at graduate schools, please use the book. Please give the book to your students. Um, I, will, I will send you copies if you'd like, but um, let's get this out there to the next group of researchers because, uh, as my grandfather said, this is a positive theory. This is something um, where we can have um, testable hypotheses um, to use against data that we see in the real world. And um, I'm actually doing a couple of papers already after the book looking at one of those is the, um, the networking interest with um, healthcare reform, and another is actually testing something very interesting that um, Susan's also uh, looking into and has looked into over a long time, which is social regulation versus economic regulation. A lot of people think that all the rent-seeking happens in economic regulation, uh, but it's not true. A lot of rent-seeking actually happens in social regs. Um, it's just hidden, right, because it's hidden behind those Baptist interests. And so some of the preliminary research I'm finding with a couple of co-authors is that the returns to social regulation is actually higher to bootleggers um, than economic regs. And so there's a lot more going on than I think we're alert to uh, without the theory. Okay, and then last, I, I want to thank our benefactors. I definitely want to thank Cato, and I, I want to thank the, uh, uh, the Searle Foundation for funding the book. Obviously, um, it, wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't have happened without them. And uh, so this is not only, I think, going to be um, a, a great product uh, for myself, uh, but for my family. And so thank you. Before we go to Susan, I can't help but ask, what if your daughter had married a Keynes and, and you ended up with a grandson named John Maynard? What would you have done, Bruce? That's scary. <laughs> you would have had a, an interesting co-author. Uh, let's go to our, our uh, commentator. Uh, Susan Dudley is director of the George Washington University Regulatory Studies Center. She's a great friend of Cato. She established the center in 2009 to raise awareness of regulations effects and improve regulatory policy through research, education, and outreach. Definitely a needed topic. She's also a research professor in the Trachtenberg School of Public Policy and Public Administration. From April 2007 through January 2009, Professor Dudley served as a presidentially appointed administrator of the famous Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs in the U.S. Office of Management and Budget. Prior to OIRA, OIRA, I thought I could do that. Uh, she directed the Regulatory Studies Program at the Mercatus Center at George Mason and taught courses on regulation at the George Mason University School of Law. Earlier in her career, she served as an economist at the aforesaid uh, agency, as well as the Environmental Protection Agency and the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the things she must have seen in those jobs. She's also a consultant to government and private clients at Economics, uh, Economist Incorporated. Welcome, Susan. 
So, so the office is Oira, and the staff who work there are Oiranians. <laughs> and there are some former Oiranians in this room, I think. Um, so thank you, John. I'm very happy to, to be here, because there's um, really no one better to write the definitive treatise on bootleggers and Baptists than this amazing grandfather-grandson dynamic duo. Um, I've been referring to the bootlegger and Baptist phenomenon or theory um, since Bruce's original article in 1983. Um, but when I talk to students, um, reporters, um, and civil servants, as you can see, I've had some experience working in government too. Um, and it's, it, in part, it's the colorful name. And it is an intuitively appealing and understandable concept that's useful at explaining why the conventional wisdom that businesses oppose regulation is often wrong. Um, so, let's see. It, I think you will enjoy the book. I recommend it um, in clear and engaging prose, which you can probably tell just by listening to them both speak. Um, they explore and extend the theory, um, identifying, as Adam talked about, different modes of interaction. Um, do I? I'm going to go to my next slide. I can look at it in front of me. Sorry, everybody. I'm not technologically literate. So Adam talked about the different modes of interaction. Um, also, as, as Bruce mentioned, what forms regulations will take. Um, and in different circumstances, you might expect different forms. And Adam kind of noted at the end, one thing I found very interesting is there's a lot of focus on what we call social regulation, so environmental safety and health type regulation, um, which extends the traditional political economy really was focused more on economic regulation, pricing, and industry structure. So that's where the original economic theory of regulation can. And I think this does contribute, as they both said, to the positive economic um, and political science literature on regulation. Um, I really liked the section in the book where you appeal to different disciplines, especially evolutionary psychology, which I just find, when I retire, that's what I'm going to spend all my time reading. I just find it fascinating. Um, and they use that to answer the question of why political actors rely on bootleggers and Baptists to guide their policy decision, and why the process inevitably diverts scarce resources from reducing valuable goods to seeking political favor favors. So um, I have long been a student of regulation. And um, as John mentioned, I served in the belly of the beast more than once. Um, and then I started the Regulatory Study Center to raise awareness of regulation's effects. Um, after I left government, I, I was out, I, I did a lot of speaking. And invariably, people would come up to me. And now I had a reputation as somewhat skeptical of regulation. So I mean, you might have heard it phrased different ways, but needing more of a burden of proof. Um, to support regulations. Um, the next slide I'm going to show you may ruin that, but we'll see if I can, especially at Cato, I may ruin my reputation. But after I left, um, I was invariably approached by people who said, well, you know, I generally agree with you, Susan, on regulation, but you've probably never, ever heard this before, but I'm a businessman. And there was this one situation where I thought we did need more regulation, or I usually oppose it, but there's a unique case. and. Invariably, it would boil down to um, a, a public interest argument that was the reason that they had to intervene. So protect consumers from this competitor of mine that wasn't nearly as responsible as I was. Or rid the world of unsafe chemicals that I happen to have an alternative to. 
So um, actually, this, this quote here, when the pace of regulation accelerates, bootleggers and Baptists are sure to barbecue while the political fire pits are hot. I can picture either of them saying that. This is a quote from the book. Um, so this is a slide of the economically significant, so the big ticket um, federal regulations from 1981 to 2013. And you can see there, there are a few periods where the political fire pits were particularly hot. Um, and here's where I'm going to be embarrassed. Um, see that big blue line, no, big red line there in 2008? <laughs> Thank you, Andy. Yes, that's me. Um, so that was, um, so I was... <laughs> So what was happening there? What's going on? As, if you look, you can see those, those. There were several peak years. They seem to come every four to eight years. So, so that's the midnight period, the midnight regulation period. So I'd like to talk a little bit about um, that window, um, the, my midnight regulation experience. And then also there's been an increase in activity over the last few years, too. So we can talk a little bit about that. Um, one thing in my defense. Um, I actually really, really tried to minimize midnight regulations, which is usually defined as the last three months of an administration, so after the election to um, Inauguration Day. Um, and in my defense, we really did have fewer regulations during that window. But what I realized after the fact that all I did with all my efforts was just push things a little bit earlier so that my final year ended up being as the biggest, I think, of all of them. So um, here's the public perception. Um, that, that business opposes regulation. So this is what was happening during the midnight period. Um, we're going to make Yellowstone officially a snowmobile park, um, suspend the minimum wage. Um, the reality is a little bit more nuanced than that. Um, so during my tenure, and this isn't just in the midnight period, um, but I saw um, tobacco companies and anti-smoking groups supporting legislation requiring FDA approval of cigarettes. Um, they talk about tobacco in there in the book. Um, I would say the mode of that one was non-cooperative. I don't think any anti-smoking groups purposely are teaming up with tobacco companies. And yet the goal was similar, and the form of regulation was pre-marketing pre approval, which would, ends up advantaging established larger companies because they have the wherewithal to do that, whereas um, smaller or foreign companies um, are at a competitive disadvantage. Um, uh, the biotech companies, that one, I'm not sure if I would call that cooperative or coordinated, um, but um, they successfully joined biotech companies and the food safety advocates um, joined to um, encourage stricter FDA and USD re USDA regulation of um, new foods with involving genetic engineering. Actually, I think it, that one was coordinated because while I was at OIRA, I was actually very skeptical of some of those regulations. And um, FDA encouraged the um, biotech industry to come. And so it was kind of a reverse bootlegger and Baptist. So they were, it wasn't the food safety advocates they sent my way. It was the biotech industry to say, we really, really need these regulations. Um, another interesting one, I think, is... Um, ambient air quality standards. Now, ambient air quality standards, they set maximum standards, um, concentration levels across the country. And um, there are many states that cannot comply with existing standards, and yet EPA has to reconsider the standards every five years and consider whether, whether to tighten them or not. Now, what would your guess be 
if you looked at the states that were supporting or opposing the tighter standards, are the cleaner ones, where do the clean and dirty ones fall? The dirty states tended to want more stringent standards. And the reason they did is that they already were under the yoke of having to comply with the more stringent standards. And if their neighboring states had to as well, it made it made things better for them. You know, they leveled the playing field. But here the mode is very interesting. There was definitely the covert. You know, there was a lot, of, there were the, the state, um, I remember I was grilled one day before, um, in front of a, um, a congressman from the LA area who um, was just very, very upset that human health was at stake because we weren't tightening the standards further, um, even though his region could not possibly comply with the new standards, say nothing about, or the old standards, say nothing about the new ones. Um, I think it was also, it was also cooperative. And I think in, now it's even, it's more, it's getting even more cooperated because California and EPA are working together um, um, on, on these standards. Um, on the international front, and I'm not going to go into detail, but we see a lot of the domestic protectionism in, um, in public interest garb on both sides of, um, or, or around the world, not just our regulations, but others. Um, yeah, you talked about toxic assets. Um, so the pace of regulation, as that other slide showed, has, has increased over the last few years. On average, if you look at um, presidents um, George H.W. Bush, President Clinton, and President George W. Bush, they issued on average 45 of these big ticket regulations a year. Um, President Obama, on average, over the first five years has been 55. Um, they've, they mention in their book the CAFE standards. I think that's interesting. There's also been a proliferation of energy efficiency um, standards. That's something that there really is bipartisan support for energy efficiency standards. Um, and yet, um, and, and it's always based on Baptist arguments about you know, we need to save energy, it's good for the environment, et cetera. And yet, all the benefits and the benefit cost analyses that are done, the vast majority of benefits are, are private savings to the individual who purchases the car. So it's, um, it's the um, sort of the behavioral argument that people are making irrational decisions and the government can step in and make them better off, um, make, help them save money. So not make them better off because they're breathing better quality air, but saving money. Um, and I, that's one thing as you think about where you go next or future um, things to um, areas to research. I think opening up that justification for regulation um, as opposed to the traditional market failure justification may really expand bootlegger and Baptist um, opportunities. Um, I also think there are, uh, we're seeing more regulations motivated by transfers rather than by efficiency gains. Um, they're renewable fuel. Your, one of your first comments was on renewable fuel standards. Um, that's a windfall, of course, for the you know, soy and corn farmers. Um, that's, I think that's a really fun one to look at because it, initially it was cooperative or at least non-cooperative where there was independent environmental support for it. That slide, your, in, that picture you had at the beginning. Um, the environmentalists now are not supportive of renewable fuel standards at all. They're bad for the environment. Um, so now I think it's more covert and they're finding new Baptists, different Baptists for the argument. So now it's small farms 
energy independence or rural way of life. So there's sort of a different way of cloaking benefits. Um, yeah, and that's, I'm going to stop there and let all of you ask these brilliant people questions. Okay, uh, we'll go to question and answer now. Uh, what I would ask is you raise your hand and I will quite rudely point toward you, it's not knowing your name, and try to indicate uh, that an, uh, one of our people shall come to you with a microphone and please, before you ask your question, wait until the microphone arrives. You might then identify yourself and if you wish any affiliation you have from your question. And also, if you want to direct it to an individual that's on the panel, um, please do so when you make it. And also, please, as always, make it in the form of a question and uh, direct it to us. Thanks. Who wants to go first? Woman right here. Thank you very much. I appreciate this forum today. I wanted to ask about immigration and immigration reform because I think you have both bootleggers and Baptists, and people would disagree as to who the bootleggers are and who the Baptists are sometimes in that debate. And do you see this as uh, a forum where um, this push-pull is actually happening? And how do you think it will continue to play out and if it can re excuse me, reach a uh, resolution? I'm sorry, Heather Stewart, NAFSA, the Association of International Educators, and also a Mercer alum. Thank you. A great question, but I'm not prepared to give you a clear-cut great answer. That is, it is a great question, but nonetheless, let's talk about it a little bit. And, and maybe while I'm talking, my two colleagues here will be inspired, if they're not already, to, to cut into this. But I think the difficulty with immigration reform is that neither the bootleggers nor the Baptists are well-defined. We can identify what we might call bootlegger interests, for example, firms, businesses, particularly in construction, that would love to have access to employees. There's a true crush that is taking place in different regions of the United States now in terms of new construction, and Hispanics particularly have been a key group with respect to masonry, drywall, carpentry, and so forth, great scarcity of that talent. And so you'd have a group there that would say, hey, we would like to see this thing open up. But then what about the Baptist component? Um, there is obviously, uh, there are voices that we are hearing that I would say fill the Baptist component. And in this case, they are, quote, Baptist or Catholic. That is, they are truly religious groups that are saying, these are our brothers. Let's treat them fairly. Let's treat them right. But I, as I think about this, I don't think either of these groups have, have coalesced well because we could identify other competing bootleggers who are on the other side of the story, organized labor in a number of cases, for example. So those are my thoughts. But Susan or Adam? Or yeah, I, I kind of punted on the question originally. I was hoping he'd kind of define it for us. Um, this is something where I think the Baptist element is going to have a very difficult time coming out. Um, the same sort of um, notions and instincts that make us public-spirited also make us um, somewhat tribal and nationalistic. And so I feel that um, what sort of gets at people's um, 
uh, more emotional and behavioral instincts are keeping immigrants out. Um, I, I think that's tragic, but I think that, again, the, um, the Baptists have their work cut out for them to oppose that and be pro, the pro-immigration Baptists, that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, next question. Woman on the aisle, up to the right. Hi, I'm Diane Katz with Heritage. Nice to see you again. To to what extent do you think that Congress, and I don't know whether to credit them with the intelligence of this or not, but to what extent do you think that um, members of Congress approach um, a regulatory matter in order to, let's say, manipulate or maximize bootleggers and Baptists, or um, do those just form naturally as a consequence of what Congress might do? <laughs> Interesting question. To some extent, your question, that is to, to sort of paraphrase, uh, as you pose the question, to what extent do members of Congress become serious actors in orchestrating a process so that it would promote bootlegger Baptist inter- interaction, which could be translated into campaign contributions, for example, uh, gets very close to the work by Fred McChesney, who looked at rent extraction. That is where, and he has many illustrations of this, cases where Congress proposed, and I participated in one at the Federal Trade Commission, where Congress uh, deliberately, we are told by them, by members of Congress, deliberately introduce very onerous rules and regulations to punish a particular interest group. The one I'm familiar with is the life insurance industry. And so then if the life insurance industry gets up and gets on its feet and gets organized in a way they could buy off the regulatory thrust and, and maybe get an outcome that's a little more pleasant. Um, but McChesney's theory of rent extraction gets to that. Um, I don't know of specific cases that really fit the model you described, that is where the politician becomes a maestro and in a way, now I'm going to be participating in legislation that has to do with uh, whether or not to legalize gambling on the Internet. And I'm going to be a voice there. And now I want to hear from the Christian coalition. I want to hear from the casino operators. I want to hear from the slot machine producers <coughs> or the convenience stores that are selling lottery tickets. Uh, I don't have a good factual story to tell you on that, but I'm going to start looking for them. <laughs> right. I think it's interesting to compare um, health care reform uh, 15 years ago with, with reform today. Um, when uh, the Clintons were undertaking it, it sort of got written and, and, and then sort of presented to bootleggers and Baptists uh, who quickly rejected it, whereas the Affordable Care Act had years of, of working with those groups to write the legislation and so um, while there were still some odds and ends that didn't quite fit and um, some bootleggers, as we write in the book, sort of drew the short straw, um, at the end of the day, that was a much more active and collaborative effort um, versus, uh, versus what happened before. And I think we're going to see more of that. Susan? Uh, down front here. Uh, 
uh, Myron Ebel Competitive Enterprise Institute. Uh, thank you all for that. It was great. Uh, I think, Bruce, you know that we at CEI have have benefited from and, and used Baptists and bootleggers as much as any group over the years, so thank you. Uh, I'd like to ask about something that seems to me to have occurred with the global warming debate, which is that the the Baptist component, the environmental pressure groups, have, have really not had enough moral authority to carry the debate, and in, maybe that's because they've lost some of their moral authority and been discredited, I don't know, but uh, so another Baptist component has come in the scientific community. And uh, I have been disturbed to see this because we have seen some very bad actors in the scientific community uh, really trying to corrupt the political process. And also, it seems to me the scientific community is now being corrupted by this uh, in, uh, Baptist involvement. So I, I wonder if you could uh, comment on that. Thank sure. you. Yeah. Adam, if you have something, dear, well, well one thing that that struck my mind is this. Um, this comes from behavioral economics, but this notion of uh, availability cascades. Hmm. Um, and ironically, it was another OIRA uh, uh, chairman that 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 came up with with that, um, Cass Sunstein. But um, the idea is once something sort of becomes the norm, even in science, it's it, it quickly becomes. Uh, uh, you know, proposes God's honest truth, even by scientists, right? We all sort of have um, that bug on, bug in us that's very difficult for us to uh, ignore a, a, a pseudo-consensus, even when the evidence doesn't point to it. So, yes, I think there's there's a certainly a behavioral aspect and, a, dare I say, an animal spirits aspect to what's going on um, in the scientific community as well. I think when they look like Baptists, that's, that's already becoming apparent, yeah. I think your the question is really interesting in terms of uh, is it possible for the scientific community to ascend mm -hmm. in the minds of the public to occupy a position of moral authority? And uh, folks who've looked at that question generally conclude religion, old-time religion, always trumps science. And I think it would be a safe thing to say with respect to our stories about bootleggers and Baptists. Was I sort of think that the average one of us uh, is bumfuddled by the scientific discussions, but we're not bumfuddled, not that it's right or wrong to be bumfuddled, but we're not bumfuddled if we are told something terrible is going to happen to the earth, the sea level is going to rise, serious problems are on the way. But then if we're told maybe that'll start in 2050 or 2060, that maybe causes us to relax in the sense of the old Baptist uh, component of our story. And uh, the groups who were supportive of efforts that failed on the Hill uh, with respect to developing cap-and-trade legislation, for example, the industry group that was behind that was solidly behind it until the legislation was changed so that the new, quote, rights would not be given, they would be auctioned. Prior to that, if I were going to get the rights and I was a low-cost cleaner-upper, then I would have had a large asset on my balance sheet. Once that went away, the coalition that had formed and was rather strong <clears throat> began to fall apart. In a way, it was a case of some Baptists without bootleggers. Uh, so, anyhow. I'll just 
I mean, I, I'm going to think more about it, Myron, because I think it's an interesting question. I am very yeah. concerned about the blurring of the lines between science and policy. And I don't focus on climate, but we see it in other areas that are less um, dramatic and visible. And I don't know whether it fits in with this, and I want to think about it. Mm-hmm. But I do think scientists do, they are elevated above I mean, if something is science, that's way better than it being politics or policy. And so if we can, if we blur the lines and put something in the science bin, it becomes more, I think. Interesting, yeah. Uh, The woman five rolls up and three in. Hello, thank you for being here. Uh, my name is Corey Hubbard. I'm unaffiliated, sort of a Cato groupie. But this question is for you, Professor Smith. Um, I wanted to address your comments about Occupy Wall Street. Sort of my background is in Good. grassroots politics. And um, I just wanted to ask you, so you described Occupy Wall Street as sort of the Baptist without the bootleggers. I wonder if you could contrast this with the Tea Party movement and whether or not, I mean, I sort of recognize the Baptists as being kind of the knee-jerk anti-government folks, but we saw sort of strange bedfellows with religion sort of cropping up. I wondered if you could sort of break down the Tea Party movement and talk to us about whether or not there's a bootlegger or a Baptist presence. Yeah, that's that's an interesting comparison. Um, off the top of my head, um, there's they are somewhat similar. Um, I think there's clearly um, probably an overwhelming Baptist element in both camps, um, which is funny given that they're, they're opposed to one another, um, at least it seems on the surface. Um, the Tea Party movement, as I understand it, had a bit better coordination um, than OWS. I think OWS almost wanted to uh, work on the uh, dimension of mass than anything else, um, but that just sort of muddled any kind of message or direction the group could go. Whereas the Tea Party, while that was probably more the case at the beginning, um, they've gotten, I think, a little wiser in terms of focusing their political efforts. Whether there's a bootlegger um, uh, behind the scenes, you know, uh, I mean, never count a good bootlegger down. There's almost always one, but um, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not coming up with one off the top of my head. I still see that as kind of a, a something that would facilitate bootleggers in other capacities. Gentleman in the front row here. Hi, I'm John Swallow, uh, Arlington, Virginia. Quick question, any of you... Um, Baptists or Methodists, and second, uh, in the uh, in the bootlegger Baptist analogy, uh, how, how many, how much, how t- it may be tiny, but how many libertarians are involved with this, trying to get regulations down, other than say Competitive Enterprise Institute or something like that? <clears throat> you want to comment? No, well, no as, comment uh, on the religious status. I mentioned, as I mentioned at the outset, I'm I'm Methodist, okay. and. Uh, <laughs> I went to a Baptist university, Mercer University in Macon, Georgia. And as a matter of fact, when I was pinning that 1983 piece and I was inclined to call it bootleggers and Baptists, I had a little bit of perhaps tinge of conscience uh, because I did not want to launch terminology that would in any way be offensive uh, to people of a particular religious faith. And, uh, but I did. But I, and I... <laughs> I don't much think they were offended by it, but it was a thought, which gets to your question. Um, and I think I would say within the, uh, that large body of uh, people, scholars and actors who are glad to call themselves libertarians, there is interest in this theory. Um, and I think largely because 
It generates what some might call unintended consequences that I would call intended consequences in terms of what the political actors are attempting to make happen. But a lot of people look at it and they say, isn't that ugly? I didn't think that's what was going to happen. It must be unintended. In terms of, of a positive theory, then I would say, oh, no, that was what was intended that is sometimes offensive to the person who is looking at it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Gentleman in the second row there. Hi, um, Nick Crossy with the Mercatus Center. I was wondering if any of the panelists could comment on the ap applicability of um, the bootlickers and Baptists uh, paradigm to um, antitrust um, considerations, like particular antitrust cases or um, uh, other sorts of market power um, that are regulations that are intended to inhibit uh, market power of, of large incumbents. If you go back to the early history of the antitrust legislation, go back to the Sherman Act 1890, and you study its applica applicability, that is, when were actions taken under the Sherman Act? You're going to have to go a long way in years. It's not until 1905 that you get an action under the Sherman Act against industry. It was used first against organized labor. And so right there you would say, hmm, maybe there's a bootlegger Baptist story here. That is, uh, you have a law that is uh, supposedly trying to uh, break up the big monopolies, and it's used against organized labor. Then if you look at the Robinson-Patman Act, 1936, uh, you know, here's a piece of legislation uh, that followed uh, when the NRA was declared to be unconstitutional, and under the NRA, firms could get together and set prices. That's declared unconstitutional. Immediately, we get an antitrust law. Uh, that makes price discrimination, price cutting, illegal. So maybe there's a bootlegger Baptist piece to that story as well. No? No? Other questions? Gentleman on the right here. Thank you. This is Hermes from Occupy Wall Street. I have a question about <coughs> this. Uh, how, how do you think about this movement? We know that the Occupy popped up in more than thousands of cities in the U.S. and in many capitals throughout the world. And uh, what, is lacked, what was lacking, as you said, is this George Washington that in the Occupy we represent as anonymous Guy Fawkes. What do you think prevented this, this George Washington to appear and why the Occupy was somehow... Uh, all the camp were closed and uh, the Occupy was put down. What do you think, what reason explains this uh, sudden popped up and sudden uh, recession? Uh, I think he's saying what, what caused the event? What was the catalyst for the event? The Occupy Wall Street. For Occupy Wall Street? I, I, I mean, obviously the financial crisis yes. and the bailout. Yes. Um, we talk extensively in the book about the troubled assets relief program, that particular part of the bailout. You had a massive um, transfer that was uh, very apparent, not cloaked by Baptist, and um, where the bootleggers were in the front page of not just the business section, but the, uh, the, the front news section, right? 
So um, uh, OWS and the Tea Party, I think it's a great comparison between the two, um, came out, uh, I think, of that. That was, that was the catalyst, is that something is just not right with the system, and it's more blatantly obvious than it's, than it's been before. Um, the question then is, well, what now? And I think both groups have uh, struggled in their own way to answer that. Mm-hmm. Um, with maybe the Tea Party having a little more success in mm-hmm. practical politics. Yeah, yeah. And I was, I'm, up, I'm uh, sympathetic with the Occupy Wall Street uh, movement um, in as much as I saw it as, uh, as Adam has mentioned, but also, if we want to use the catch term, a reaction to crony capitalism. And uh, there was a lot being said and a lot being felt prior to that being fomented about about they are bailing out Wall Street, they're bailing out the banks. What about ordinary people? Uh, and one of the key parts of the story about TARP uh, that is uh, in the book has to do with, and Adam made reference to it earlier, had to do with the anger that developed about the huge bonuses that were paid to officers of AIG after being bailed out, even though it was part of the deal, even though it was part of the contract, it still didn't cut it with the average one of us on the street. And so uh, I think that was one of the issues that fomented it. But uh, when young people get inspired and they have smartphones available to them for communicating, then things can happen in a hurry in a large number. And we're witnessing that now in Hong Kong, for example. One quick follow-up on that. Um, it didn't make it into the book, but there is a, a, a paper I have that I, I have this graph where um, it was, let's see, it was March 15, 2009, um, around then when the, uh, the bonuses were announced. That was a watershed moment for TARP because if you look at the data in terms of um, um, distribution, disbursements of TARP money, you know, it's up, it's up, it's up. March 15 hits, it goes like that instantly. It's sort of the mechanism, the Bootlegger is uncloaked, and uh, and that's all she wrote for the mechanism. Gentleman on the aisle. Hello, my name is Kyle Walker. I'm with the Charles Koch Institute. So um, it seems to me there's there's a pretty broad coalition of people on the left and right that agree that cronyism is a problem. And the disagreement kind of lies in what the solution to that problem is, right? People on the left tend to suggest that business and private people are the problem in trying to abuse the government's power. People on the right or libertarians tend to suggest that the government's the problem and we need to reduce the power of the government to kind of give out concentrated benefits. And I'm just kind of wondering, what does your theory seem to suggest? Because it really seems to be more of a, a focus on private individuals as the problem, right? They're forming coalitions in different ways to abuse the government power seems to be what your suggestion is. So how might, how might we think about it in that context, I guess? Well, I think the, the both sides have their blind spots. With the left, I think there's a lot of naivety about uh, incentives. There's almost just a dismissal of incentives altogether, like it doesn't matter. You know, we can just sort of make um, make different initiatives a uh, goal, and, and, and it'll just sort of work out by itself, even if it's not incentive compatible. Um, with the right, I think there's honestly a big blind spot as to how much um, 
the private sector will take advantage of the benefits of government. Um, I think that there's, uh, uh, again, that we kind of blind ourselves to, to, to saying that, well, the market wants to be a free market, uh, but I don't think that's always the case. Mm-hmm. The, um, and I think the, uh, I'll add to Adam's comment, uh, and, and I, as I understood your question, that is, would you focus more to the right or to the left in identifying what is the problem? <clears throat> I would focus to the institution itself. If we go back and look at Federalist Five and see what James Madison was writing about when he talked about special interest effects and factions that take place, and we've got to design a government that will enable competition, political competition, to try to resolve this problem of bootleggers and Baptists competing with each other. And uh, so there was wide recognition, I would say, among the founders that, hey, we're going to, we may get hardening of the arteries here. Uh, but having a republic instead of an open democracy may minimize this problem to some extent, and that may be sort of where we are now, as opposed to saying it's a problem with the right or with the left. I would say look at both directions, but also look at the voting rules and the Constitution itself and how rulemaking changed uh, beginning about 1970 in the U.S., and we became a code law country at that time. One more question. Do we have it? Well, in that light, uh, our book today has been Bootleggers and Baptists by Adam Smith and Bruce Yandel. Uh, Having gone through our form, we can now go upstairs and have lunch. Uh, I would ask you to go upstairs to the Jaeger Conference Center. As you go toward the back, uh, it'll be evident when you get up there. Uh, The restrooms will be on your right. You'll see some yellow walls, and uh, that, that will guide you there. So I would like to thank our authors uh, on behalf of Cato uh, Institute Press and on behalf of the Cato Institute uh, for writing this book and for appearing today. I would like to thank Professor Dudley for commenting on the book, and I would like to thank you for coming and to welcome you to lunch.